Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm back here with Inez. Uh, we, pre- last week, we left you all uh, previewing, um, the coming SFFA, uh, the Harvard decision. We speculated that it might be out like the next day. Um, and it was. It, it, uh, the Supreme Court had a decision, uh, the day after we uh, released the podcast. Um, I've written uh, two articles on this now, and I did a tweet thread on the whole, uh, pretty much the whole decision. So I think people, my takes are, are out there. Uh, I know you've tweeted about it, Inez, too. Um, is there anything sort of uh, that you think is no? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, we got into it a little bit last time, but it. I'm curious to see how much of this reasoning ends up being transplanted into outside of the university context, because universities are going to fight this tooth and nail. I think there are some good ways to make them fall in line, one of which is continuing to bring these kinds of cases. Um, but others of which might be open to a potential Republican administration. Unlike in K-12, there are a lot of bureaucratic levers that can be enforced, a lot of riders that can be put on funding, um, a lot of investigations that can be launched from the um, OCR office in the Department of Education. Um, so actually, I think there are a lot of bureaucratic tools to enforce this kind of ruling. I think that would be a good uh, thing for a competent Republican administration to do, whether we're likely to get a Republican administration or most especially a competent Republican administration is open to question, I think. Um, but it's possible. But I, I'm I'm really excited, potentially, which is an unusual state for me uh, about the, the future of the country. Um, uh, based on, you know, how much cross-pollination there is with analysis under the Equal Protection Clause versus um, Title VII versus like, you know, under all of these, these civil rights statutes, right? Um, if we were to start getting really aggressive about enforcing a colorblind standard in American corporations, I think that could undo a lot of the cover your ass sort of initial move in the 1990s with the changes to the law in terms of, of providing an equal and opposite cover your ass incentive for companies on the other end to be racially neutral in hiring and promotion. Uh, so that's, I think, what be most exciting. This doesn't necessarily legally derive directly from this case. But as I said, you know, and as you know, that kind of legal analysis between these various, between constitutional analysis, the statute analysis and the CRA, et cetera, um, you know, certain constructs or, or judicial uh, phrases or terms of art tend to jump from one to the other. Um, and I would hope that because in principle, right, it's, it's the same thing. It is actually guaranteeing um, equal, equal treatment under the law uh, and, and um, guaranteeing that people are not being rewarded or punished on the basis of their skin color. Yeah, yeah. You know, the decision and, you know, people talk about the decision, how much will it matter? Will they just get around to, you know, get around it? Um you know, the way the civil rights sort of regime and the bureaucracy uh, has built up over the years and the rules and sort of the practice of, of everything, it's not like there's one decision and then everything changes, right? It's like the courts do one thing that's incremental. And then like it sends a message as to like what the court will do next time. And then the bureaucrats and then the lawyers and the, you know, the judges, they all uh, sort of, you know, build on that. Um, and so we have this thing that, you know, where, where uh, the Supreme Court's, you know, rule six to three, that Harvard and UNC can consider race in college admissions. Um, and in theory, you know, you're, you're, as you uh, alluded to, it wouldn't, um, it, in theory, it, it might not matter. 
Um, you think it might not matter for something like Title VII, which is, you know, employment law, um, or Title VI in other contexts outside of college admissions. Uh, you know, you could, you there could, you know, and lawyer, left wing lawyers in the future will be arguing that they will be, they will be doing the thing that lawyers do, which is find the, uh, uh, whatever they can in the case to say this argument is very, very specific to college admissions for whatever reason. Oh, it's because it's, because it has to do with Asians or, or something like that. You know, they, they could find something. Um, but yeah, in the real world, I mean, this is going to matter. I mean, I don't know if you saw the Aaron Severium uh, piece in the last day or two uh, about the um, Columbia Law Journal. You know, they have racial quotas on their uh, law review. Um, and now they're like delaying the announcement. They want to make sure that, you know, they can actually just, you know, have racial quotas. Um, you know, so there's like, there's these effects on uh, institutions. And um, yeah, it is, it is exciting. I mean, I think that you know, the universities, you know, people are like, oh, it's going to, they're going to get around it. The problem with the universities is that they're bad people and they're crazy, right? Like we know that. We know they are like the most ideologically committed people uh, to left-wing ideas on, on race and gender. So like there's only so much you can do in that, you know, in that world. Um, they're going to do bad things and they're going to do things that a lot of people don't like and the mean you are not going to like. And that's, and that's something we're going to have to deal with. Uh, but the rest of society, everything around the universities, uh, K through 12, uh, too much. You said there aren't any, a lot of levers for K through 12. I think there are a lot. I mean, it's the same, it's the same lever that you have for the universities. It's title six. It's, it's, uh, uh that's, you know, you can, uh, you could use a lot of, it's, you could use the exact same legal mechanisms, right? Um, yes and no. In, in the sense that, yes, there are, there are legal hooks, especially when you're talking about anti-discrimination. Um, but there are many fewer bureaucratic hooks because the amount of money that's coming out of the federal treasury to go to um, education in K-12 is uh, much less. So uh, before COVID and COVID changed these numbers a little bit, but hopefully temporarily, um, you're talking about 10 or 11% of funding uh, in a state-by-state basis that's coming. And yes, I mean, they do a lot with that. There's lots of strings attached. I mean, uh, conservatives have been sort of fighting this for a long time. Uh, that being said, universities are entirely dependent on federal federally backed student loans and grants. Most universities could not operate without them. Um, and so there's enormous bureaucratic leverage there in a way that there, I don't want to underplay how much the feds can mess with K-12. Um, they can, and they have, uh, especially the, the um, Obama administration messed with discipline standards uh, through the threat of investigation. They can put out dear colleague letters. Um, so it's not that they can't cause havoc and they do, but there are a lot, it's a lot easier. Um, it would be a lot easier for an administration to really start to attach. I can imagine just one thing. So compliance with, um, with this Supreme Court decision, with their constitutional obligations, attaching a rider to Title IV funds, um, where if you are not in compliance with your constitutional obligations and then opening like sort of a, a series of investigations to check that universities are in compliance um, the way that the left has done with all of this stuff, right? Uh, many, many times. So I, it, I think immediate financial consequences are actually much more relevant in the university context and much more easy to apply bureaucratically than they are both in K-12. But also, I mean, we have so many examples of this right now. At this point, uh, with universities defying constitutional obligations, we have the First Amendment fight where, you know, folks like fire or whatever, go out and they win case after case after case against universities, free speech zones or whatever else. Um, 
in, in the federal courts and universities settle those cases, pay out every few years, and then find some new way to restrict speech on campus. Same thing with due process, right? Um, when you have young, mostly men, college men who are having their due process rights vindicated in court after court after court by ha- after having them violated by public universities. Um, and yet universities continue to violate their due process rights, right? Why is that? Because they're more afraid of the woke mob on campus than they are of, you know, having to settle a case every five to 10 years with somebody who really is really dedicated to having their name vindicated, right? Or their rights upheld. Um, and they just would rather write that off as an expense of doing business. Um, that's why I think the the bureaucratic levers are so important in, in this particular case. And I think there are there are ways to do it. There are ways to make universities miserable. Um, yeah. And the left has done them all. So I feel like Yeah. I mean I, I think even if it's a low even if it's a low percentage, lower percentage of um K through twelve funding, yeah, you know, bureaucrats still don't like to lose money. So if they don't want to lose money, they don't want to lose money, right? It's not a you know, whether you have 70% of your funding or it's 10%. I imagine they are responsive, which is why that the Obama administration could do all that stuff with school discipline because, you know, they, they, you know, they, they did need the money. Um, well, that's investigators, yeah. right? And so yeah. on this specifically on under civil rights law, they, that's one of the ways that they actually do have quite a bit of power over K-12, but on other issues like curriculum issues, uh, even compliance with what replaced No Child Left Behind, ESSA, um, this sort of one last one in the series of bipartisan K-12 reform attempts or whatever. I mean, there are tons of states, um, well, not tons, but a good handful of states that are just continually don't care about being in, in compliance with ESSA. And there's like very little that the feds can do about it, um, which I think is a good thing. Because, you know, I, I don't want Arizona in perfect compliance with ESSA, but um, I'm just saying that this isn't kind of getting off track, doesn't matter. But the point is there are ways to universities miserable uh, bureaucratically if the Republican administration wanted to do so. And this this decision gives them the cover to do that because they can point to it and say, no, no, we're just enforcing the law. We're enforcing the Supreme Court decision and we're enforcing the Constitution. Yeah. Elections are just so important, right? So the next president will determine uh, both like who the judges are, like, you know, whether they want to just ignore SFFA uh, going forward, if they just want to, you know, uh, be accepting of all these, you know, all, all these uh, kinds of uh, differential treatment based on race. So it's the judges themselves, but also, you know, the one-two punch of also the government and it's, you know, investigate, it's investigatory power. Um, I don't know if we even need a competent Republican administration. I mean, I think just like you guys have the right appointments um, and, you know, that's not, that's not trivial. Um, but I think people sort of, you know, I think Republicans and conservatives sort of understand, um, what the game is with universities. Uh, so I think either way, I think we'll get, I think we'll get, you know, good things happening if Republicans are in office. Um, but yeah, I think that like the, as bad as the universities are, I mean, the corporation, corporate America, I mean, I see them as not really true believers. Maybe they are true believers, but they're believers in the profit motive first, and they're motivated by the profit motive uh, first. And I think if you really bring the pressure on the Title VII stuff, you can sue for reverse discrimination and also uh, take out the pressure for, you know, disparate impact standard. Uh, I think we can see major changes there. I think we can see, um, I think the target, uh, you know, thing, I think the target thing, the Bud Light thing, just, just a hint of sort of what can, what's coming here. I think business is, is, is sort of a, a domino that's just ripe to fall. Uh, do you have a similar view? I think it's possible. I mean, I think I go back and forth to what extent I believe that corporate America is true believers um, in a lot of this 
cultural commitments of theirs, a diversity or whatever else. Uh, I think the younger, the younger employees. So a lot of these, these CEOs who are Gen X or older are dealing with a kind of two pronged pressure. One being from the internet mob, which is often exaggerated. Uh, but, but the much more important is, is the internal pressure from younger uh, employees. Right. And that's very real. That pressure I don't think is going away. Um, but at the end of the day, I've been quite encouraged in the Disney battle in the battle against Delta in, in um, Georgia for trying to pull out right after Georgia passed some very mild um, voter sort of ID kind of basic security for their elections. Um, they, they kind of caved as well Delta afterwards um, because there was a threat to take away their, their benefits for being the hub there in, in Atlanta I've been quite encouraged by that, plus the Bud Light example and the Target examples that you mentioned. I think these companies are pressurable. And this would be a really, I mean, look, we pressured them into this kind of initially in the 90s. I doubt that a lot of these corporations wanted to adopt this like sort of diversity mentality or or for that matter, the mentality of kind of police speech in so aggressively um, within the corporation, like that if anyone is slightly offended by something uh, somebody else said that it's, you know, that we very much pressured them into creating this entire industry around sexual harassment, racial insensitivity, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, we can pressure them out of it. I hope. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I was, uh, I had, a I was on uh, Steve Sh- uh, shoes podcast, uh, uh, yesterday. And, um, he said that, you know, when he talked to CEOs 20 years ago, they said they did this stuff for uh, like affirmative action compliance, basically. But today that, uh, you know, you talk to a CEO and they're true believers. And I think that but what I said was, I, yeah, that might be true, but you know, there is the, you know, the Robert Trevor's theory of self-deception that people will convince themselves of what's in their interest to believe, right? So you have a civil rights regime that's there for a while. Um, people, you know, get financial rewards for being extra sensitive. Uh, you know, they get to, they basically, they, they get protection. They're less likely to be fired if they sort of lead into their identity. They're going to get in trouble. You know, if they, if they, uh, express a conservative view or, uh, try to have colorblind policies that have a disparate impact. And it's human nature that people will just sort of start to believe stuff over time. Right. And so some people worry like, oh, it's just like the next generation is, is, is crazy and they have these views. I think that's right. But I think people's preferences like do change, you know, given the incentive structure. Uh, so I think that's what people like should understand. They shouldn't like take preferences of individuals or universities or institutions or whatever as fixed because these things will change as the law changes. To some extent, yes. And so I, I think I agree with you. I just, I think there are other countervailing forces. Um, and I do think the younger people are, the more likely they are to be really committed. And then to that extent, the younger they are, the more likely they are to be where their career incentives and um, that those commitments are aligned as well. Because now we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who work at very nice salaries and these kinds of compliance bureaucracies. And so, yes, I, I believe incentives matter. Um, incentives work. If you can't, you can't build a system that requires of everybody to be Solzhenitsyn, right. Um, and expect that outcomes are going to go your way. You need to provide both material incentive and also the kind of more intangible incentives, the honors that society bestows, right. You said people get awards for being the most sensitive, right. Um, what society 
honors and awards you will get more of. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I have hope, I have hope that I just, I, I I do think there are countervailing forces within that, but, but yes, I mean, ultimately the average person is only going to be ideological to a point. Yeah, that's, that's right. So yeah, so that's SFFA. I mean, it's, uh, like what you said, um, that it's like, you know, basically like, uh, the start of something. It's not the end. It never, nothing is ever the end of anything. I mean, it's always just going to lead to the next thing. Um, and so, you know, things are going in the right direction and we can be happy about that. But there was also another case on the civil rights front. Um, uh, was it, what was it? 303 Creative Studios versus Colorado. Is that the name of the case? Yeah. So, um, this is a case about a website designer. Um, it's a free speech case, not a religious liberty case, which I've seen reported wrongly from way too many outlets, both on the left and the right. Um, I think because it's so similar to Masterpiece Cake Shop, but there, um, the the board, I can't remember the name of the board, but there the board evinced real um, religious animus, right? And bigotry, like essentially anti-religious bigotry. And that's a large part of what the, the case turned on was all this evidence that uh, the members of the board were actually discriminating against Jack Phillips because of his religion. Um, so that's why that case was primarily done under religious liberty. This is open to everyone in a sense. Um, this is about everybody's freedom of expression. Uh, it's called expressive conduct. Uh, you might think of it as the artist uh, carve out in the First Amendment, the artist uh, sort of protection in the First Amendment, that some kinds of conduct generally have this distinction right between conduct and speech. Um, and, and the First Amendment, as a general rule, protects speech and not conduct. Um, but sometimes you have things that's very difficult to tell, whether it's conduct or speech. So for example, if I'm following somebody down the street and I'm screaming slurs at them, but I'm following them while I'm doing that, is that free speech or is it conduct? Is it harassment um, for me to follow somebody? So that would be in most states uh, have laws against that, but that, that is not protected by the First Amendment is me following somebody down the street screaming slurs at them, right? Um, whereas just saying the slurs might be protected speech. Um, here, it's the building of a website and it's so-called expressive conduct. So something closer to what an artist does, where you're, say you're an artist selling your, whatever, your knickknacks on, on Etsy, your paintings on Etsy. Um, so it's a commercial transaction in some sense, right? Uh, but it's also your expression. It's your expressive conduct. Um, and that is sort of the clearest case if you're a painter and you're painting things that somebody can't commission from you. Let's say you really, really hate Donald Trump, um, somebody commissioned, I used this example earlier, right? Somebody commissions uh, a portrait of him and, you know, uh, Napoleon epaulets and, um, and and underneath they want inscribed, you know, God Emperor Trump, right? Uh, and, and you decline that transaction, you decline that request uh, because you don't want to paint a, a portrait of God Emperor Trump. Um, everyone kind of recognizes that as something essential to free speech. So that's really what this case is about, um, is about that kind of expressive conduct. She makes websites. She didn't, she's happy to accept all customers. This is really key. Another thing that, uh, continually getting, gets muddled in mainstream media. She's happy to accept gay customers, but she doesn't want to design a wedding website for a gay marriage. Um, so that's what this case is. I mean, this case really should have been nine zip because, the, the main distinction between that, that sometimes uh, subtle distinction between speech and action, uh, in this case, both parties stipulated that this was expressive conduct, meaning that it was protected speech. Um, and 
I mean, I think it was Sotomayor in dissent basically ignores that fact um, that both parties have already stipulated that this is expressive speech and sort of ignores that and writes about this speech conduct distinction. Um, but in any case, it's a, I think I think it's a, an important decision. I do think there are some implications, not from this case, but from cases like it going forward. One is going to be the tension between speech and conduct, which is kind of old hat for the Supreme Court that may decide it one way or another, but this has been a continual problem, right? Um, because the, the line between speech and action is not always clear. Um, but on the other axis, I think it's who these kinds of rights attach to, right? Um, and oh, I'd actually to the first axis, I would add that the, ultimately run into, to some extent, a public accommodation. Now there's no, uh, there, they didn't succeed. The, the left hasn't succeeded in Congress in adding um, sexual orientation and gender identity to the civil rights act to the protected classes but in many states they do have soji laws um so the question is whether it's expressive speech or it's commercial conduct right and discriminatory conduct so that's one axis that i think is going to keep getting litigated but but the other one might be who whose rights who these kinds of rights attach to whether it's religious liberty or freedom of speech here is sort of the easiest case because it's just one person selling one sort of artistic service as a small business. The middle case might be Hobby Lobby, which is a, a company held very much by the, I think it's called closely held corporation, where it's the, the family was still very much in charge of this company, um, the single family. And then on, on the other end of the spectrum, you might have a um, large corporation, a publicly traded corporation that has shareholders, uh, has a board, right? Um and the question that the sort of Mitt Romney question of are these corporations people, do they have religious liberty rights? Do they have free speech rights? Right. Um, do they have the right to associate? Do they have the right to turn down entire classes of customers? Right. Um, I think that's another axis that will probably show up in the court again and again in the next few years. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's a, there's a statute, a statute that protects religious freedom that says, you know, you don't burden people for religion, but that's not what this case was decided on. This case was decided, and I see it right now, just it's plainly the first amendment. So it's not that you can just not be forced to, um, uh, make a, you know, pro gay marriage, uh, um, website if that violates your religion. Religion has stronger protections for a lot of reasons under, you know, for in a lot of different ways under the law. Uh, but this one actually, if I just don't like gay people, I don't want to do it. I don't agree with gay marriage. I can do that. And it's like, I mean, or it's good. Correct. I mean, it's uh, what's that? Or the reverse. In other words, if if you had yeah, an yeah. objection, um, maybe somebody, maybe uh, you're you're a website like designer, and the Westboro Baptist Church wants you to design a yeah. website for their anti-gay rally, right? You you have the right to decline to do that. Yeah, and this is like it's so extreme. This has to be like a question, right? Like you can literally force them to celebrate your gay wedding. I mean, the free speech protections are pretty strong um, under the, under modern First Amendment jurisprudence. Uh, it just when rights tend to run up against civil rights law, um, you know that the other rights get thrown away, and it, that's why it was and, and the you know disturbing thing is to throw LGBT. You know, it was already bad enough for race and sex. Um, we already like sort of suspended a lot of our civil rights there, you know, freedom of, uh, freedom of association. Um, but the, you know, and, and in some cases, free, in some cases, I'm sure freedom of speech. Um, and then, but then you get like this new category of like gayness and like trans. 
And there's no constitutional justification. Just Colorado law like happens to really, really like homosexuality and dislike the anti-homosexuality view. Like, okay. Uh, so they feel like they could just suspend the First Amendment and like, you know, three liberal justices will, will go along with that. I mean, what is, what is driving this? I mean, it, it's absolutely insane. Um, well, I mean, just in terms of what's driving it, it's obviously this relentless drive towards Harrison Virgin, Virgin style equality, right? The Kendi style. Is that what stuff is? Um, and, 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 and the, the, of course, the like machinations of the left, like, and the hierarchy of who's more victimized and deserves higher protections and, and more inclusion in the protected classes. But look, this is famously, this was Goldwater's objection to the Civil Rights Act, to the specific yes. public accommodations piece of the Civil Rights Act that it, yeah, it speech, so aggressively yeah. suspends, um, it, it so aggressively suspends the right to association and the freedom of speech in, in various ways. Um, that that this piece, and even though he has he had a long record of being against segregation and fought against it in the state, and so and had voted for all previous versions of the Civil Rights Act that came up while he was a senator, this one he didn't agree with because he thought it suspended too much freedom. I I think I used to agree with that view more than I do in the sense that um, do now that I I think there is a problem that to me seems parallel um, where you really have to take into account the availability of services, similar services elsewhere, right? So Goldwater's view is basically this, the free market can solve this, right? Um, if you're excluding entire classes of customers, you're going to be losing money. Somebody else is going to come along, take those customers, provide them with the services that we need. We, we can live in this sort of happy libertarian utopia where, um, you know, all, all service, all need for services is met by the free market. So even though you might not be able to force you know, uh, this particular designer of websites, you you have endless choice of people happy to design your websites, right? So um, in this case, that seems true. Um, same thing with the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, right? Those, those folks were deliberately targeting Jack Phillips over and over again for these requests. There were any number of bakeries they could have gone to that would have happily fulfilled their request, right? So it, it, it seems almost like had to have an animus in a certain sense, like they're going after him again and again, trying to force him to violate his religious beliefs in order to bake this cake, right? That's where the whole meme comes from. Um, I think it gets more complicated when, if we go back to the sort of analogy for, or and, and the way in which the public accommodations piece of the Civil Rights Act was upheld in that heart of Atlanta case, the, the problem is if all the given businesses, in that case in a geographic area, but could be, um, could be, I guess now it could be digital or, or any other, but um, at all the given businesses in a, a given market, in this case, let's say hotels along a highway, stretch of highway that runs in the American South. If you can count on all the other hotels to exclude the same class of customer, nobody's really losing money vis-a-vis -vis their competitors, right? So like if every hotel along the highway for 800 miles says, I don't want to serve black customers, um, then that sort of free market mechanism of, well, I can always, we're free people. We can engage in a free way. You don't want to get, you know, give me your, your, you don't want to take my money and, and give me a service. Well, I'm going to go down the street and the same, and somebody else is going to do it. Um, that mechanism didn't operate because they all had this cultural belief in alignment with each other. And so they could count on, and it's almost like an antitrust situation, except not in economic terms, right? It's not about economic collusion. It's about shared cultural beliefs. And I think something quite similar is happening, for example, in some in, in tech, um, 
social media companies uh, until Elon Musk bought Twitter. You had sort of each one of those social media companies could count on the other ones um, to basically ban the same set of views and people because they all agreed about who really needed to be banned. And in that sense, there was very little market mechanism until Elon, you know, the sort of black <laughs> black swan event, right, comes in and he just buys out one of these companies and decides, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna loosen up. We're gonna have a more free speech platform. Um, you can't count on that happening. In, in there. Anyway, I, I think this is actually a really um, this is a, a complicated question of what to do when. And so I, I guess in that sense, I have a little more. Um, respect for the public accommodations solution to this, or at least there was an underlying problem that isn't addressed by that Goldwater speech because it assumes a kind of lack of coordination between businesses in a given field, but very much doesn't apply in these, these cases with, with like the Christian Baker or with this website designer who just didn't want to design because in those cases, those services were readily available Everywhere else, it's not a matter. There's not a single gay couple in the country who cannot find somebody to design their wedding website. Yeah, that makes it uh, particularly absurd. You're absolutely right on that. But I, you know, I would, I would like, I would support, you know, sort of the, uh, I would uh, sort of give you know, make a brief for the Goldwater case. Um, you know, I don't, we don't know if that, I don't know if that's true. That we know that like every hotel would have stayed um, segregated uh, for long. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Even if it's true. Um, you could open it. I mean, that sounds like a great business opportunity. If the hotels are, you'll be literally the only hotel that can op- that will take black people um, over 800 miles. Sounds like that. Sounds like there's a lot of opportunities there. I mean, I think there. You know, there's a good paper that I uh, linked to on Twitter called uh, "Prejudice is Free Discrimination as Cost," and just shows that, like, you know, markets are pretty good at breaking this stuff down. I mean, it's really, really hard to maintain systems of segregation. Um, even if you do have segregation, I mean, people have preferences maybe for people of the, you know their own of their own. Background. Um, even with even with that, you know, there's nothing stopping uh, the group from starting its own businesses, or like another group, like immigrant groups, or or white northerners, carpetbaggers could come down and open hotels in the south. You know, and if as long as there's no laws uh, preventing them from doing that, I don't I don't see the problem. I think the uh, the um, uh, it's harder with the social media censorship is is like you know, a different animal because it's like, you know, it's like Twitter is, it's just Twitter is just Twitter. Although we have seen the market, I think the market is sort of like showing that maybe there, there can be alternatives to Twitter. I mean, there's the Twitter, this uh, Instagram threads thing just uh, dropped a lot in the last, uh, in the last day or two. Um, but yeah, I th- you know, I agree with you the way you, we see these things and the, and the, the, the LGBT stuff is just so petty. I mean, so petty. These people have no, you know, problem, you know, uh, accessing the services that they want. Um, they're just, you know, finding the people that like, you know, just finding someone to tell them no, and then like picking on them. It's just so like mean spirited and like unnecessary. Um, I just don't get it. And it's really like, it's really frightening, <laughs> like divorced from principle, sort of like the liberal dissent in this case is. Yeah. I mean, look, um, th- this is to the extent that I've, I've kind of rethought some of my previous market market commitments i guess i could call them it's a, a similar observation that this just simply doesn't play out the way that that sort of market um that market dance that goldwater pointed to i mean i think um in free to choose milton friedman points to a similar kind of thing he says well if you have a state broadcasting company right um that that if, if somebody broadcasts something that people don't like um 
well, then when the state controls all of the broadcasting companies, well, then there's nothing to be done. But if you have a free market and you have a bunch of um, you have you have a bunch of private news outlets, like we mostly have in the United States. Right. Um, well, then I think he, he talks about book publishing as well. He says, you know, no publisher can afford uh, for his bottom line to publish books uh, with which or only publish books with, with which he agrees. Right. And it seems to me that the, the problems of our current moment have had a lot to do with exactly the sort of situation that is supposedly doesn't exist in this view. And, you know, the, the existence of, of this kind of collusion was in, in terms of, of in the American South um, in, in the fifties and sixties, it's, I think the evidence for it is the fact that something like the green book would have to exist, right? That there, there were so few providers who are willing to step out of, um, of line on this, even when it became like not under the law, right? Where you had pieces of, of the civil rights act that, you know, um, pieces or, or, or um, basically when, when de, de jure discrimination stopped being a thing, you still had this, like essentially this, this guide to the six people in the American South who are willing to offer services to black people. Uh, I think that that cultural collusion is quite a powerful force. And I, just don't I haven't seen it play out in our current era the way that Milton Friedman said it would or that Goldwater imagined that it would um, over time, even though I think you're right. I think the free market does have for both good and ill has a way of sort of breaking down traditional commitments um, over time. So maybe on the scale of 100 years, that's true. But on the scale, shorter time scale, I just haven't seen it happen that way. Uh, you know, we just never gave yeah, but we just never gave freedom. I mean, much of a chance to see what it could do. I mean, the the heart of Atlanta Motel case was in 1964. Um, it was the same year as the Civil Rights Act, so we did not have like a period where we ever tried oh, free markets. It's about we so had- it was about upholding. So basically, the question would be: Does Congress have the power to pass this public accommodations piece? Surely, the Fourteenth Amendment gives them the power very clearly to pass the other piece of the the civil rights act right which is to say what state actors can and can't do what what laws states can and can't pass okay we acknowledge that there's you know uh that 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 congress has the power to do that but but heart of atlanta was about exactly the public accommodations piece and the argument was you know where in the constitution does uh, the power for congress exist to force private businesses to impinge on that, that, um, exactly that right to right, exactly. associate. So yeah, no, they're the same year for a reason as well. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, but, that was, but set aside, I mean, set aside, but my point was that, I mean, set aside the, the constitutional justification for the, or the, the legal reasoning of the case. Uh, the, the question is like, would, you know, if you, all you did in the civil rights act, like Goldwater would have wanted is just to get rid of Jim Crow. And then you let the markets, let, let freedom go and let the markets do what they want. Like, we don't know that, like, you could have maintained segregation. Like, we, we don't know that black people wouldn't have had on the highway because we never tried the freedom. We had Jim Crow, and then we had uh, anti-discrimination laws. We had no, like, period with which to even test the proposition um, that markets can actually work. And I think that they, I think that there's a lot of historical evidence that, like, when groups are discriminated against, unless you have, like, unless you actually force them apart, you know, people, people chase profits. All the white Southerners, 100% of the white Southerners can be racist. Nothing is stopping black people from opening hotels. Nothing is stopping immigrants from opening hotels. Nothing is stopping uh, uh, white Northerners from coming in and opening hotels. People like money, right? And so I, I don't, you know, this is a this is a little bit of a digression because 
what you're talking about is like today's, you know, today's uh, situation. And I, I agree with you um, that like social media censorship is potentially a problem uh, when you, um, but I think like other things are like not, I mean, it's not like Disney's like refusing to have conservatives at their park, or it's not like conservatives can't find hotel rooms when barriers are entry to low. I think it's very hard to just maintain like a discriminatory system. Even if they discriminate, they bear the cost of it. Other uh, businesses can come and take their thing. The, the social media censorship is different. Um, I will grant that you can't just build your own Google. Uh, or Twitter that easily, but well, most but other things Google and Twitter, right? It's um, that's actually the, the sort of, in some sense, the least worrying aspect of the kind of social credit system, private social credit system that's possible, right? So uh, you know, we have those cases of banks who are refusing to hold the accounts of Second Amendment groups, and where it's very difficult for Second Amendment groups to find a you know large national bank that will work with them because of their views, right? You can even easily imagine any number of sectors where there are a handful of major players in the market. Think about cell phones, right? There's only a few major providers um, where if they, if they can just sort of arrange on the basis of shared cultural commitments that they don't want to offer phone services to, I don't know, any of these conservative uh, litigation <laughs> firms, um, or any number. I mean, there, there, there are just uh, enough sectors that are not technically monopolistic. They're not. I mean, they have a handful of major competitors, and that's always been right and fine. And I'm not suggesting we move to a kind of European model on antitrust. But it doesn't seem to me that our laws currently address. And now maybe there are too many um, unintended consequences. Maybe there are other reasons not to address this through law. But I, I wouldn't dismiss out of hand the idea that it's appropriate to um, to break that kind of, of cultural market share power, right? So even though each individual business doesn't have a major market share, if you have such like basically monopolistic power on the basis of shared cultural commitments towards a certain class of customer, I mean, that seems to me to be a public problem in a way that this, this Masterpiece Cake Shop or 303 is not a public problem because like we both agreed, those guys can go literally anywhere for those services. But if, if you have a class of people who are continually denied all access to a particular like entire sector of the market, I think that that is a public problem in a way that the others are not. Uh, so yeah, speaking of which, um, so, um, you know, social media, censorship. I think I, you know, I agree. I mean, I agree with you on that. I think that's like, that's probably like the best case for like the market can't, uh, solve it. Um, Although it's sort of, it, it's sort of maybe it can because like there's a, there's a new competitor to, uh, to Twitter now um, on Threads. Let me ask you this. I mean, this is a question I you know I'm, I'm curious about. I personally am not like as much of a free speech free speech absolutist um, when it comes to private companies as a lot of people are. Uh, I think that a lot like I think that if like people are just saying false information, like there are accounts with hundreds of thousands of followers who literally just make stuff up. Right. And now we have community notes like, okay, like, you know, the, the, their tweet will be, their tweet of just completely fake news will be seen by 5 million people. And then, you know, finally community notes, some people will see that, you know, it's not true. And so like, you know, like I would not be against getting rid of those people from like social media platforms. I think that like, I think that just like having a world where anyone could say anything and like social media platforms like are not allowed to just, you know, we know, we know the, the use potential, but like, like, is it, 
can we just have a world where like we tell private companies that like you have to put up with any nonsense, any kind of, you know, no matter how uh, viral it gets, no matter how false it gets, you just have to put up with any nonsense on your platform. Is that what we have to like have in order to protect free speech? Um, well, look, every, every social media platform does censor certain types of speech. Um, you know, child porn is a type of speech not protected by the first amendment. Right. So they're, they're, Nobody truly wants to be on a, a platform where literally you can post anything um, at, in part because it, it becomes unusable. Uh, I mean, I, I, even though we're talking about this in the private context, I think it's worth revisiting why false speech is protected to begin with under the Fort First Amendment. And then we can move over into the private context and you can say maybe it applies, maybe it doesn't. Um, theoretically, obviously it doesn't apply in our current jurisprudence, but I think there's a lot of kind of backwards rationalization when it comes to why certain things are protected by the First Amendment. Chief among them might be obscenity, right, and pornography. Um, a lot of those decisions came about in the 60s. So in that sense, I agree with you. I'm not a free speech absolutist, um, but something like false speech, especially actually political false speech, uh it, I think, is right in the heart of what's really important to protect exactly because the problem you're indicating never stops. Um, the question is false speech according to whom? And yes, there are objective standards. This is not to say that truth is relative. There are people who are objectively false and people who are objectively correct about certain things. Um, but the question is whether a censorship regi regime the, the person who ends up or the entity that ends up deciding between what is in false speech, what is and isn't false speech, um, has its own interests always, right? And that's why that creep problem happens. It's why false speech is protected, not for its own sake. Um, the purpose of the First Amendment is to get us closer to truth, not further away from it. Um, but false speech is protected because in, in the case of the First Amendment, we don't trust the government to be able to determine because... You know, you might be able to find a few easy cases on either side, but then the vast majority of things are in the middle and are a matter of, of for example, preconceptions, um, axiomatic commitments prior to the, and I'll give you a really good example of this kind of fact checking from my own past. Um, I, I wrote a piece a while back years ago um, about California water restrictions, right? They're, they're in the middle of the drought. They put in some water restrictions and I got fact checked by Snopes. Um, back when Snopes, I think was a bigger deal and sort of respected across the political spectrum as being like the internet fact checker. Um, and so the first thing that they said was, well, um, cause I said, Oh, you know, California is going to fine you for running your laundry the same day you take a shower. Um, and that was the tweet version. The article was more sophisticated than that, but let's say that was the tweet version. Um, and they said, no, that's not true because these fines are assessed on the companies that provide the water. Well, that's, that's a matter of debate in terms of, okay, but I would say those fines will immediately be passed on to the customers. Do you think that they won't be? I mean, you think that the, the water company is just going to eat millions of dollars of fines and not shut off people's water when they, they over or pass on those fines, right? That's a matter of, of where those fines go. That's, that becomes immediately not a matter of fact, but a matter of preconception or ide ideological perspective. Um, and then they said, hold on, there, there's a, a second example. I think these are like actually relevant in the sense that it's, it shows how fact and, and perspective interplay. 
um, they said, actually, you could run your laundry and take a shower um, at the same time and still fall under those limits because, and then they picked some numbers to, to run it. And the numbers that they picked were one, you have, they assumed you have a, a water efficient shower head, which is more expensive um, and, and a water efficient appliances. And they assumed that your shower would be, I think it was shorter than 10 minutes or something like that, shorter than five minutes. I don't remember. Right. But the, the point is like how you pick the parameters determined whether their factual statement is true or whether mine was. Um, and that itself is such a, like, I, I don't think there's any non-ideological way to police those things. And that's why false speech is protected and ought to be allowed on social media platforms, in my view. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I understand that. I mean, I wonder what sort of like, I, I, yeah, that's the classic case for free speech. And, you know, I think, you know, the, you know, the problem with social media might be, and maybe this is sort of what I see, is that like when there were gatekeepers, you know, for whatever problems they had, like you couldn't just make stuff up. Like the New York Times doesn't publish facts that are just like, you know, completely made up, right? They, they, you know, they're biased. They, you know, they, they twist things in their favor. They include some things, but not others. But you can't have like, you know, just, just completely, you know, made up stuff. And now on Twitter, like anyone could say anything. And it's sort of like a business model for these people to just say like breaking and then just like, you know, just, just make up just anything. And I, you know, I don't know. I'm worried that like our discourse is just sort of getting dumber and dumber. Like what is the, I mean, what is the, what is the solution? Like the solution to speech is more speech. Is it the solution? Because I see these people on Twitter and they are, you know, they're huge names. They're doing very, very well for themselves um, by just making things up. So like, what's gonna, you know, what's gonna stop them from doing that indefinitely? Um, the question is whether that problem is the more dangerous one or whether the censorship problem is the more dangerous one. I mean, I think anyone honest would acknowledge that there's, there's not, you know, the market doesn't completely police, uh, you can, you can, the truth, what is it? What's the phrase? The truth, the a lie can go three times around the world while the truth is still getting its pants on. That That's sometimes very true. Um, and, and the question is whether you end up trusting the American population uh, to sort through information um, and and make better decisions than a single gatekeeper, like that that's really what's what's going. That's really what this is about, right? Do you do you trust with that power the the gatekeepers or the demos? And I mean, maybe this is a continual disagreement between you and I, but I I I trust the average American much more than I trust any of the elite gatekeepers in this regard. I don't think they've taken so they they in the New York Times they might not publish some like fact about some scientific study incorrectly, but they sure will mischaracterize it in ways that I think are much more important, actually, than the, the factual thing, because in part because the factual thing is somewhat easier to check. Um, whereas, you know, I don't know, publishing an endless series of Pulitzer winning reporting um, that is just blatantly false afterwards. And I could give you two examples, one from, of course, the, the Trump-Russia collusion stuff. Um, and then going back in time, I mean, this is not just a Trump problem. I mean, Walter Duranti published endless fake news in the New York Times about about uh, the Holdemore, about the Soviet Union, um, factually incorrect stuff. Um, so they they have gotten a lot of things wrong. And, and I, I'd much rather put my faith in this case in the many than in, in the few elite gatekeepers because I think they have a really bad track record. And yeah, so if that means that like some... I, I think I know the account, exact account you're talking about. Like, was it the account that tweeted that the whistleblower was dead? 
in the Biden case. I think like, there's, so many, there's so many. I mean, there's not like one in my mind. There's like five. There's like five or ten in my mind. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of them. Um, yeah, but like people figure out if you look at the, the replies under those tweets, and then ultimately the community notes. Like people actually figure out. I think the community notes is actually a really fair way of doing this, which is it. Yeah. it do you know? Do you know this guy named Stu, kind of Stu Peters? Centralizes it in a certain sense. Do you know this guy named uh, Stu Peters? He made the Died Suddenly movie. He's got like two hundred fifty thousand uh, Twitter followers. Um, he's uh, wh- he works with this woman named Lauren Witzke. Do you know her? She was the Republican Senate candidate for Delaware uh, one or two cycles ago, and um, you know she, she's pretty wild. <laughs> she's like you know the, the, so Stu Peters like you know he, his big thing is like Michelle Obama is really a man. You know he did the Died Suddenly movie, so like the vaccine is killing everyone. His big thing is Michelle Obama is really a man. That's like one of his things that he like keeps hammering on. He has video e- evidence of like close-ups of Michelle Obama where you can see something or other move. Um, <laughs> he's, and he thinks the Ukraine war is fake. I mean, like everything. Like it's just a just an incredible guy. I was invited on his uh, show actually. <laughs> I was like, should I do this? This would be sort of fun because they like the black crime issue. So when like one of my black crime uh, uh, you know tweets uh, went viral, uh, they invited me on, and then like you know it didn't like work out. But I was like, I was actually thinking about it. Like this would actually this would actually be sort of fun just because they are so incredibly crazy. I'm I'm more forgiving if these people are uh, entertaining. But yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of very successful crazy stuff on on Twitter. Um, Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I get it. I mean, I get it. I, the COVID stuff, you didn't even mention the COVID stuff. You went back to Will Duranty, but yeah, the COVID stuff, my God, uh, it was just, just a night. Yeah, but there, there's another example where the gatekeepers were continually wrong. And it doesn't mean that every one of, of the sort of conspiracy-minded tweets that went viral about COVID is correct, of course, but it, it, it does mean that, I mean, you, what, you want, you want, to turn over the policing on social media to, to, to what gatekeeping entity, the CDC, no, I don't. Actually You're right. wrong I... over and over and over again during COVID. Is that really a better track record than a website mm. that allows among many Alex Berenson to exist? No, no. I mean, it might be, I mean, it might be, I don't want this. I certainly don't want the CDC to do it. You know, what I might want is like, you know, the sort of first amendment in force in the way this uh, Missouri v. Biden, the injunction that just uh, said that the government can't be communicating with social media about this stuff, but then let social media companies maybe do what they want. I think that would probably be my preferred solution. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I get it. I, I get that this is a difficult question. I, just um, don't, I don't trust. I'm, I'm, I do not trust. I equally mistrust our, our business elites as I do, uh, our government elites for different reasons. I mean, I, I don't, I, on some things, I think one might be better on the others. I think the other one might be better. I, I actually, there's an interesting retreat into the public for like the public sphere, I guess. Right. Because we were talking off air about what happens if say Uber and Lyft, the two biggest companies, um, they decide they don't want to serve anyone who has bad tweets and they just, they have a, they have a running list. Um, it's an internal decision. If you get, end up on the bad tweets list, you get booted from Uber and Lyft. This is not a theoretical consideration. Laura Loomer, I believe has been booted from both those companies. Right. Um, so although the, the Loomer thing, I, I think there might be like, she, like it was not like she had bad, she had bad tweets about her Uber driver. It was something like this Muslim picked me up and I don't like it. So I mean, I get I that that's sort of, I'm not in the business of defending Laura Loomer. The, the point is like yeah. that, um, it's not a theoretical consideration. You could easily imagine it being expanded out much, much further than Laura Loomer. Um, 
if that happens, right, there might be a retreat into the public option. Exactly. Right. Where like, okay, what's left? Well, um, city licensed taxi drivers. Well, can the city license a taxi drivers that exclude a class of people? Well, maybe not, um, depending on what, what laws in the states are passed. And so that's why I think like a lot of this is going to take place in a, a space where conservatives often feel uncomfortable, which is through public legislation. Um, there, there's going to have to, some of those, those quote unquote rights, they're not enforced by the first amendment, but, but the American way of life that, that people were used to until, you know, a few years ago, fundamentally, where what you say in private or in, in even in public and social media, but not directly as a course of your job, right? Not I'm standing representing this company and I'm, I'm saying, but like, I don't know, in your personal life, um, has the potential to not only lose your job, but make you a untouchable in some kind of weird social credit system where you can't contract or give your money to any private ride services. You can't, let's imagine that it extends from second amendment people. You can't get a bank account. Your banks all drop you. You can't, you have to start putting your money under your mattress. Like that's not, I mean, I don't think that's a, a far out projection from where we're at because each one of those things has happened to a small group of people. And it's obvious to me that there's no, no limiting principle here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I see. I see your point. There's more. There's more that could be said here. Um, but uh, we have a limited time left, so I wanted to get to this. Um, uh, or we haven't done a Vivek show. I think Vivek deserves more than the you know six or seven minutes we're going to give him here. Um, but there was a. We could start the conversation. Uh, there was a Vox article. Vivek's Ramaswamy's uh, rise to semi prominence explained, and then the, the subheading is either GOP's idea candidate of ideas or a grifter question mark. <laughs> and so uh, what do you think about um uh, what do you think about the sort of uh the Vivek uh campaign so far? There was one poll, people shouldn't exaggerate, it had him at ten and DeSantis at sixteen. And like that's an outlier. I, Vivek has not been close to ten in any other uh any other poll. Um but I you know I thought that the I thought that the young man had potential um from the like the time he announced and I think he's sort of played this perfectly. Um you have a you know any like a big big picture I mean, I think he is the ideas campaign. Um, I think I think he, he's the kind of candidate who could do really well in a debate and suddenly become sort of a viable inter- uh, alternative if for some reason DeSantis starts to really like fall off even from his 20%. Um, and I think that's possible. Um, I I guess the only thing I don't like about Vivek and I kind of like the headline with the grifter, I don't think he's a grifter by any means. I think he's a smart guy who has some really smart ideas um, had him on my podcast. Uh, I really have enjoyed his books. Um, he does have a bit of a kind of a corporate motivational speaker gene to him that is just annoying to me. It, it, it's like, he seems like it's very slick and focus tested. And like, at the same time, he's saying some quite brave things. So it's, it's not, that I think he's a coward, but I just, this, this sort of like slick presentation, I actually don't like, uh, but that might be something that's personal to me. I don't know how voters feel about that, but I, I feel often when I listen to him give a talk um, at a, a conference or whatever else uh, that I feel like I'm listening to one of those luncheon speakers for like a corporate conference. That's that, that is the vibe to me. And I don't, but like people, yeah. 
but cor- but the corporate style has evolved because people I think do respond to it. I, I think that like you know I do think that there's like people love like Tony Robbins, right? People love I don't know if you remember Tony Robbins, but like these motivational speakers, which were a much bigger thing when I was a kid. Um, people do like that, and like this does emerge in corporate America. So you're right, there is a slickness, there is a there is a polishedness to it. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing. I, you know, I think that like one thing he does, which I think is great. And I uh, posted a video recently of him at the Moms of Liberty conference. Um, he really in, invested in, uh, you know, uh, optics and production value. I went to his, um, I went, he flew me out to uh, Columbus. I was on his podcast, um, some months ago and it was, um, it was an, it was really impressive. I mean, they had a, like, he had like a, a, like a professional, like a couple people, like a studio. I mean, it was, he, this was like before, this was just like right at the beginning when he announced, um, or, or maybe even slightly before when he, he announced, you could tell he'd really invested into like making a nice looking podcast. And the, you know, that's like, it's like the, uh, and now it's on YouTube and it, you know, it looks great. You could see my interview with, uh, Vivek there. Um, and you're right. I mean, I think it, I think it's like, it is corporate. It's like, it's part of the whole package, but I do, you know, I do, I do sort of like that. I mean, I do think that there is, you know, there is like, there's nothing wrong with like trying to present your ideas well and trying to, uh, reach people, um, in sort of like the language that they do understand. I mean, it's like, it's like the, uh, yeah, like, you know, what is, what, what could be, what could be sort of the downside of this? Um, like when you say something is corporate, like the downside would be what? It's like fake because I don't get he's fake, right? Cause that's one criticism somebody could make of like the corporate style. Like, you know, there's um, some kind of like, there's some yeah, kind I mean, of hide I, I the ball, but I don't get that. I get that like, that's a good presentation. I think he, it's yeah. inauthenticity that is, yeah. it, and it doesn't mean that the ideas that he doesn't believe in any of the ideas, but I think it comes off as packaged and inauthentic. Um, but I think that's one that's very personal, individual yeah. or whatever to people. Um, some people I think are going to really like that and find it professional. And some people are going to find it um, inauthentic and sh- sort of suspicious. Right. I-, I do think generally this is a generational divide, actually, weirdly. Um, like, so, for example, uh, I know over at Breaking Points, Crystal and Sagar, they in- are investing a ton and having this like very professional setup. And in part, they do it exactly because um, they want independent media to be taken seriously by, you know, the powers that be like, you know, older people who look at some guy in a t-shirt on YouTube um, with a microphone um, and, and think, well, this guy isn't serious, right? Where's the suit? Where's like the, the, where's the news desk? Like this doesn't look like real news. This looks like a bunch of people chatting behind a microphone, which, you know, I, I think, but on, there's a corresponding flip side to that, which is that there are increasingly, I think it's part of the reason that we have, we live in quote unquote influencer culture, which has its own inauthenticities, of course. But the reason that that's powerful is that people in the absence of being able to trust an institution, right. Or being able to trust the local news or, you know, ABC or CNN, um, people make what they feel are sort of personal relationships with individual broadcasters or news folks or accounts they follow or whatever. Um, and where they feel like there's a personal trust there, they've observed you over time and there's a personal trust. And they, you know, even when they disagree with you, they sort of count on you to, to correct yourself if you're factually incorrect and so on. I think that there's a much more individual quote unquote relationship that's formed there, um, in the absence of being able to trust institutions. And I think to, in that kind of news economy or outside of the news, even in terms of, of choosing politicians. I mean, I think being unscripted helps Donald Trump. 
right? I think people who mistrust, maybe it's not even a, a, a boomers versus younger people thing. Maybe it's just people who mistrust institutions. I think mistrust that slickness um, and that professional preparedness. Um, in, and it's kind of difficult to convince them that it's not grifters or it's not fake or it's not. Um, so I, I don't know. I think people have very polarized reactions to that kind of presentation. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if the younger generation is against like the because you mentioned Crystal and Sagar. I mean, they're they're a younger generation, and they are you know they they're, they're doing great. I mean, they they right. seem like their audience, which I think leads younger, does actually. And if you look at something like Joe Rogan, which is sort of like authentic guys sitting around, you look at a studio. I mean, it's a very prof- so it's like it's sort of it is like a sort of manufactured um, authenticity. Yeah, but I think but those are different things. Like you can imagine spending a lot of t- a lot of money on a studio and, and a good microphone, uh, but still having that very casual and authentic presentation um which i think crystal and sagar do but the reason that they've spent all the money on the studio and the look and like the reason sagar wears a suit which he said publicly over and over again right is because he wants actually to be taken seriously by people who watch let's say they they want people like they, they want the fox audience to you know turn over and and watch breaking points and say oh like maybe this is a good independent source of media whereas if they they tune over and it's like you know joe rogan with the microphone they might not but then again joe rogan is enormous right um joe rogan is the biggest podcaster and i think a large part of that and a large part of his appeal is that people have observed him over time they don't feel that he's got like a, a presentation they don't think he's got anything slick going on he's there with his like you know his hoodie and he's just talking to people and asking questions and i think there is an enormous appeal to to that and i don't think that necessarily correlates with having like a nice studio by the way i did just but that kind of pre- presenting yourself in that way in a very polished way i don't know even in sort of my personal work i present stuff way way differently in the kind of conversation that we're having than when I am working with Hill staffers. Like I will send them a, you know, four corners memo. I'll send it over to like a graphics design team. They'll make it into like a slick PDF. It'll have bullet points. It'll have, you know, um, I don't like having stuff presented to me that way. And that's why I don't conduct myself on podcasts that way. Uh, But I know how to do that. And I know that it does appeal to certain kinds of people. And I just think there's a big divide there. Yeah, got it. Well, there's much more that can be said on like aesthetics and style and uh, generations and presentation. There's a lot. There's a lot there, but uh, we'll have to save it for next time. So good talking to you, Ness. It's good to talk to you.